The scripture reading today is Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. He also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down, and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill, and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful is a very little and is also faithful in one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth who will entrust you to the true riches if you have not been faithful in that which is another's who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money this is the word of the Lord morning everybody right Um, if if we looked at last week probably the most famous and well-known parable, the parable of the prodigal son, Uh, we turn to what is probably the least known and quite possibly the the most confusing of the parables, uh, this parable of this dishonest or shrewd manager. Um, I said this before, uh, I don't know about you, but I have have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the parables. Um, I love them because they are kind of a doorway into... um, the kingdom, learning about the kingdom of God, right? They, they teach us about Jesus. They teach us about ourselves. Uh, they teach us about what it means to follow him and to be part of uh, his kingdom. And there's nothing more important than understanding those things. I hate them because at times they make me want to pull my hair up, right? Um, and if you've ever felt that same way when you read the parables, uh, don't lose heart because in some sense, that's exactly what they're meant to do. Um, the, the parables are meant to make at least some of the audience or the hearers of each parable uh, want to pull their hair out. Last week, it would have been 
uh, the Pharisees in Luke 15, right? When they, they probably wanted to uh, rip their hair out in disbelief and frustration as they listened to that story of that inheritance-losing pig herder prodigal son being welcomed in by his father without having to do anything to, to earn it. The, the, the Pharisees would have been baffled, right, completely confused, and probably even irritated as they tried to make sense of that story. And, and again, in one sense, that's exactly what the parables are meant to do, right? They're, they're, they're not meant to make everything crystal clear. They're, they're not meant to make these truths easy to understand. They're, they're actually meant to make us stop in our tracks and say, excuse me, did I mishear you, Jesus? Maybe, maybe you misspoke uh, Jesus, right? They're, they're meant to make us pause and sit there and wonder and wait. Um, we've used this, this picture before, like an automatic door. The parables force you to come close enough for the door to open. They, they invite us to come close to Jesus, to ask further questions, to, to wrestle with these things, uh, to doubt them, to question them, to uh, simply sit at his feet in order to wait for that door to open um, in order for us to fully understand what he's saying. Um, and, and some parables do that um, in greater ways than others, it seems. This, this parable does that uh, on first reading, doesn't it? Um, I don't think anyone reads this parable and goes, oh, makes perfect sense, Jesus. That, that you're, what you're saying uh, seems completely right. Um, no, uh, it makes me want to pull my hair out this week. I'm trying to dig through this. And upon first reading, you, you think, this doesn't seem right. This, does, this doesn't even seem fair. Or, or, or surely, we didn't just hear Jesus uh, give a commendation for this sneaky businessman, <laughs> Um, if that's what's going on through your mind, then the parable's working. Um, it's doing exactly what it's meant to do. It's making you pause, come close to Jesus, and humbly, or, or not humbly, um, begin to ask, what is this upside-down kingdom of God really like? And that's what we'll try to do this morning. Um, let me pray one more time for us. Father, you are um, so far above us. You are so unlike us in every way. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, and yet you allow us to come close to you and know you. And we thank you for speaking to us um, through your son, through your word. Um, would you give us ears to hear this morning, Lord? Um, help us to humbly sit at your feet. And Holy Spirit, would you teach us, we pray. Amen. So the, this truly different, uh, unknowable God actually allows us to get to know him, and he does so primarily and perfectly through his son, Jesus. And we, we read in his word that Jesus, he really, what he does is he teaches us uh, who he and the Father are, um, oftentimes by using pictures and symbols and images and earthly stories, because that's the world we live in, right? Um, you, you might be familiar with John chapter 10. Um, remember where Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. That's a, that's a picture that he uses to, to tell us something. Um, or John chapter 6, where he says, I'm the bread of life. Or, or John 15, I am the true vine. Um, th those are earthly images that help us to understand not only what, uh, who, who God is, but what our relationship with God is like, right? He's not an actual shepherd, right? He's, by saying he's the good shepherd, he's saying that he cares for us, right? He, he defends us and he leads us. 
By, by saying he's the bread of life, and he's saying that he feeds us, that he, he nourishes us. And as the true vine, he supports our branches. His power flows into us. Um, and, and, and one image that, that isn't as popular as those ones, for some reason, is this image of the master of the house. And, and if you've been kind of paying attention, that's a big one in Luke. Luke, Luke kind of uses that, uh, that image multiple times in the gospel. Uh, it, it's teaching us that, uh, that the Lord is the owner of a house and all that is in it, and that we are meant to be faithful stewards in his house. Um, he uses that image. Remember back in chapter 12, he, he talks about the, the, the master of the house being away, and he will return, and he seeks to, to find uh, stewards uh, who are faithfully steward over his household. Uh, he picks it up back in chapter 14. He's this master of the house that throws a banquet. Um, it's used in, in Hebrews 3. Remember, Moses was this faithful servant in God's household. Christ was faithful as a son over the household, and, and we are that household if we hold fast to the confidence and hope in which we boast. So it's, it's a really helpful uh, kind of metaphor that he uses. Um, not only does that image of the master of the house teach us about the Lord's ownership over everything, it also teaches, teaches us about our stewardship in his household, right? To be, to be part of God's kingdom is to be a steward in this house, not the owner of the house. And here, through Luke chapter 16, Jesus really begins to hone in on that aspect of the kingdom, on, on stewardship. And we're really asking this main question, is what, is, what does a faithful steward of God's household look like? Right? If, if the master of the house, God, has put us, his servants, in charge of stewarding his possessions, what does that look like? And the passage that we look at today says uh, stewards of, of God's household must be shrewd and they must be faithful. Shrewd and faithful. Uh, I don't know about you, but, but shrewd is not the first word that comes to my mind when I think of like the Bible's characteristic, characteristics of the Christian, right? Um, you, if you're like me, you think of loving, um, we're to be faithful, right? Hospitable, humble, caring, kind, compassionate, joyful. Um, those are the, the things that generally come to our mind when we think of a disciple. Uh, how, how many of you would honestly say the first thing that comes to my mind is shrewd? Um, but it is. This is what Jesus is calling his disciples to be, shrewd stewards in his household. And, and interestingly, he, he gives us this, this example that he points to is this shady businessman. Um, I find that hilarious, right? It's, I, I love those verses that, that give us this like, real-life Jesus, um, we, we can easily think of Jesus as a Renaissance painting, right? That the halo always over his head, always upright, um, rarely smiling, no sense of humor, uh, never edgy. Uh, but he is those things at times, right? He, he, he is real. He was sinless and perfect, but he was real, right? I love the real Jesus. His back hurt at the end of a long day's walk. Um, his, his mouth got dry after he was teaching all day long. His, his breath smelled at times, you know, and his feet got dirty. And, and here he is, the, the, this real Jesus in a real place, speaking to his disciples, and he gathers them together, and he wants to teach them something specific and important about life in his kingdom. And, and he uses this story of a dubious, morally ambiguous character in order to capture their attention and teach them something and make his point. It's not what we expect, right? Like, Jesus should always point to be like a Mother Teresa, be like someone who is, who is morally clean. But he doesn't, and it makes us pause, and it makes us wonder. Um, let's read it one more time, the first 
kind of eight verses. Uh, It says, he, Jesus, also said to his disciples. So remember what I said last week. One of the first questions you want to ask yourself when when trying to interpret a a parable is, who's the audience, right? Who who is he speaking to? And and we learn here that his primary audience is his disciples, right? These are are people who who are... uh, already in the kingdom. They're already following after him. These aren't outsiders, although we do see there, there are some outsiders listening in, but his primary audience is to the disciples. Keep that in mind. And he says this parable. There's a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking away the management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So what's happening here? Um, you have this, this rich man, this, this master of the house, this master of the estate character. Um, most likely he's this wealthy landowner who has so much property that he's, he's hired out the use of his land. And so these, these local businessmen have, have contracted the farm on the, the rich man's land, and in return, they owe him a portion of their produce. And obviously, the master isn't going to manage all of these accounts himself, and so he, he's hired this manager to steward his possessions and to keep his books and whatnot. Uh, we learn from the opening line that uh, the manager's terrible at his job, right? Uh, it turns out he's been wasting the manager's possessions, uh, it's actually, Jesus uses the same word that he uses in the, the prodigal son parable for the, when the son squandered everything. That's, that's the exact same word. And so, uh, like any uh, good business owner would do, he, he brings the, the businessman, the, the manager before him, he, he puts the allegations before him, and he, he fires him. Um, uh, notice the manager doesn't even try to defend himself. It's, it says he's, like, it's kind of well-known. What's this I heard about you? He, he, like the manager knows this is the end of the line for him. It seems the master is gracious and he doesn't sack him immediately. Gives him a, 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 some kind of notice period. Maybe a day, maybe two. And, and so, what is the manager to do? He's, he's in a terrible situation his job is coming to an end, and in this kind of situation, um, the, the manager most likely was living on the master's estate, right? He's, he's comfortably living in, the, ma- in the, the master's mansion, and so not only is he losing his job, he's, he's losing his home, right? He's, he's on the verge of, of employment and homelessness, and so he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? Right, I'm, 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 it's softened him, this, this cushy job. He's not strong enough to dig. He's, he's, he's kind of high up, so he's too ashamed to beg. And so he hatches this scheme. He has this brilliant plan. And importantly, remember this bit. We're told right away what the motivation behind his plan is. In verse 4, he says, I've decided what to do. When I, when I lose this job, people may receive me 
into their houses. That's the motivation, okay? He's, he's concerned for his future, and so he comes up with this plan. And in verse 5, we see him execute his brilliant plan. It says, one by one, he begins to meet with his master's debtors, the, these businessmen who've contracted out uh, the rich man's land to farm, and they owe him a portion of their produce. And, and what does he do? He begins to give these massive discounts, right? He, he's, he's hooking them up. And remember why he's hooking them up. It's so that they'll hook him up once he loses his job in his house, right? And it's, it's actually quite brilliant. You see his, his shrewdness in how he, he asks each one of them to declare their debt. And most likely, there's a record of the debts, right? So, so why does he ask them to declare their debt? I think possibly because he wants to make them accomplices in the deceit that's about to unfold, right? He, he wants to make it clear that, that they both are in on this. We, we both know what's going on. And now because of their complicity, they will be much more likely to help him in his time of need. And there are massive discounts. The first debtor owes 100 measures of oil. That's about 3,000 liters of oil, which was equivalent to about three years of wages for an average worker. It's a, bit, it's a large amount of money. Um, what, what's that, 90 to 100,000 pounds in today's money? Um, and the manager gives this man a deal that's too good to turn down. He, he cuts it in half. He's saving him up to upwards to 50,000 pounds. The second man owes even more, a thousand bushels of wheat, it's, it's ten tons of wheat, which would have been equivalent to ten years of wages for an average worker. Um, huge amount, which is probably why he gets a lesser discount, but it's still 20%, right? That's, that's a, a huge savings. And we get those two examples, but it says one by one, he probably does this with, with most or if not all of his master's debtors. Right? And you can, you can just picture him sliding his card across the table as he makes each, de- each, each of these deals saying, remember my name. Right? Re- remember what I've done for you. And, and um, you can imagine as, as these kind of new, albeit lesser debts, begin to be paid, the master realizes, realizes what this cunning manager has done, how he's, how he's shrewdly looked out for himself. And how does he react He's raging at him, right? No, he praises him. And this is the, the kind of make, your, make you want to pull your hair out moment. Like, surely, surely we didn't, you got something wrong here, Jesus, right? But he, but he did. In verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Right? And, and the question we must answer is, why does the owner praise the dishonest servant? Right? In a simple way, it says it right there, for his shrewdness, right? But, but, but what about his shrewdness is Jesus, he seems to be telling his disciples, replicate this, be, be like this. In the second part of verse 8, you get the moment where Jesus kind of steps out of the story and he begins to interpret the story for us. You see that word for in the middle of verse 8? That's, this is the reason we get for the... Uh, the commendation. The, the master commended the dishonest manager for or because, and here's Jesus' interpretation, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Still not super clear, right? 
So let's break it down a little bit. Remember who Jesus is speaking to, right? Well, who's his audience? He's speaking to his disciples. These are, his audience are those who are, who are already part of the kingdom. So he's not talking about uh, uh, shrewdly kind of buying your way into the kingdom. No, he's, he's, he's talking about something else there. Those are, these are ones who are kind of walking in his ways, and he says to them, listen, this, the sons of this world are more shrewd than the sons of the light in dealing with their own people. The, the, the sons of this world, that refers to non-disciples in this conversation. These are non-Christians. And then the second group is the sons of light, which are Christian disciples. And Jesus leans in and he says to his, his disciples, you guys can learn from these worldly, from the worldly dishonest manager, these sons of the world. He's saying when it comes to worldly things, the sons of this world, they tend to be wiser about being in the world than a Christian is. The world does worldliness better than the saints, right? And there's, there's an aspect of that to, that's, just, that's just true and good in a sense, right? In, in, in one sense, Christians are meant to be aliens in this world. You're meant to be like, you don't fit in, right? There's, something about this place is not your home, Right? And, and that's why the church should never try to atta- attract the world using worldly methods, right? When we do what we just, which seem like poor imitations of something we do not understand, right? So, th- so the parable is, is praising the manager. It's not encouraging us to mimic the world and their worldliness. It's, going, it's doing something deeper. In verse 9, you kind of get the punchline. Here's what, what Jesus is calling the Christian disciple or the steward of God's possessions to do. So we need to use worldly wealth to make friends. Verse 9 is a little tricky, the way the ESV translates it. He says, Jesus says, I tell you, and right there, that should make you stop. Okay, Jesus says, I tell you, listen up, this is important. I tell you, uh, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. And that's kind of tricky in the ESV. The NIV puts it better when he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. The unrighteous wealth in the ESV should have kind of quotations around it. Because what he's, he's speaking, that's, that's, the, that's that word mammon, right? He's speaking of, of earthly riches, um, the, the coins in your purse, right? The, the, bank, the, the money in your bank account, He's not talking about heavenly riches. He's talking about worldly money, unrighteous wealth in that sense. He, says, he said before, don't set your mind on your hearts on those earthly things. But here he's saying they are useful. The, the money you have, whether it's very little or very much, um, ultimately doesn't belong to you. It's God's money. We are stewards of his possessions. And Jesus says, I want you to use that wealth wisely. Steward God's possessions, his wealth, shrewdly and wisely. And here he says, use that money to make friends. And the rest of the the sentence is, is really beautiful and important. Use worldly wealth to make friends so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So that when it fails, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the money, right? He's talking about the, the earthly riches. Notice he says when, 
worldly wealth fails. Not if. When it fails, and and listen, everyone in this room, your worldly wealth will fail you. Not a matter of time, or it's a matter of time, not a matter of chance. Any money that is sitting in your bank account will one day belong to someone else. It's a temporary gift for you to steward in the present. It will fail you. In other words, he's saying it's an inadequate God. And so Jesus says, yes, use that money. Yes, spend that money. But don't spend it on things that will fade away. Don't spend it on things that you can't take with you. Spend it on things that last. Invest it wisely. Right? Now, we need clothes, don't we? You need food. You need shelter. Um, it's okay to, to go to the cinema. It's okay to go on a holiday. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He, he's simply saying, at the end of the day, you can spend all of your money on self, or you can spend it in ways that benefit you and last for all of eternity. You can spend it on self, on, on earthly things, on things that will one day end up in a rubbish heap, or you can spend it in a way that will benefit you for all of eternity. And in this example, the way you should spend your money for eternal gain is spend it on people. Spend it making friends, right? The, the, the money will fail you, so, so we need friends who will outlive our wealth. In fact, we need friends who will outlive this world. I think we can easily lose sight of that, can't we? And sometimes with kind of good Christian intentions, right? We, we're, we believe this world is not all there is. Like, all of this world will pass away, and we're, we're waiting for heaven, right? And we will enter into heaven with, with nothing but what we've brought in. You know, we, we, we go into glory with our soul only. Everything else will pass away. Nothing we can take with us. And there's some good truth in that. But, but don't miss the fact that actually in this room, this room is filled mostly with eternal things, right? With the people sitting right next to you. The people sitting next to you will not pass away into nothingness someday. They will enter into eternity. I hate when you, I know you hate when I ask you to do this, uh, Shake the person's hand next to you right now. If, you, if they're family, maybe just squeeze their shoulder. Look them in the eye. That, that, that is an eternal person. That, that is a forever person. I love how Jesus puts it at the end of verse 9. He says that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Isn't that beautiful? There's a few different ways you can understand what Jesus is saying there. The they who will receive you into eternal dwellings can either, can either kind of refer to possibly God's angels who welcome us into heaven on behalf of God. They could be a unique way of referring to God, Father, Son, Spirit, who rewards those who love him uh, whose love for him moved them to generosity in this way. Um, either of those could be fine uh, interpretations, but I think the most natural way to read it 
is that he's referring to the friends we've made on earth, that, that if they precede us to heaven, will welcome us one day when we arrive. I think that's a, a, a powerful truth, that, that here on earth, here we, we are stewards of God's possessions in this lifetime, that that has eternal significance. Be, be generous now so as to accrue benefit for yourself in heaven. Like, who knows how, how our acts of service and, and, and generosity and our, our faithful sharing of the gospel might impact other people's lives and result in a warm welcome in heaven. The Christian life is one of a gospel-shaped hospitality, a gospel-shaped generosity of using our, our elf, earthly wealth, wealth not for the sole benefit of self, but for the benefit of others, Right? Spending our money on people, on, on making friends, on, on welcoming others in and sharing the gospel with them, that's a beautiful investment. Um, I had a good example of this growing up. Um, uh, I, did, I didn't grow up in a rich family. Uh, there were times when we had very little, um, times when, when we had uh, enough. Um, Mom worked really hard, owned her on business for, for a little while, uh, never raking in the cash, but uh, we did all right for a season. But even then, um, in our highest moments, we never lived lavishly. Um, and thanks to mom and dad, uh, growing up, ours was the house that, that people came to. Um, our friends were, were always welcome to our house, always open. Um, even now I know, um, back then I didn't always know, even when it was inconvenient. Um, and I'm sure even when mom and dad just wanted a, a quiet night in the house, uh, jammies on, the door was never closed to people even then. Um, as a father of a household now, I, I know uh, how uncomfortable uh, that must have been for mom and dad. But I think of those, those countless meals that were made, not just for our family, but for other people. And mom and dad were examples. Uh, was, was it, it was a season, uh, it was a Thursday nights. Thursday nights where there's this, was this night that every week there's any number of university students would come to our house and, uh, and get a meal and just a place to, to, to hang out in a home. Most of these were uh, uh, out of town students living in dorms. Um, sometimes it was even when me and my sister weren't even there. <laughs> we, you'd come home and, and there's a house full of, of students. Uh, mom and dad still opening doors to welcome strangers in. It's a real beautiful, eternal way to spend your money. Um, not on the more comfortable, lavish lifestyle, but on people, on, on eternal souls, on making friends. And I wonder what kind of warm welcome into the eternal dwellings there will be. Like, really, I, like, I look forward to one day sitting around the heavenly banquet table and, and sharing those stories of people who were welcomed into our house and those people our parents spent their money on in order to make friends and welcome them in. There, there's eternal significance to the way you spend your worldly riches in this lifetime. And there's, there's two things and that I want you to see that Jesus is getting at here. Um, on one hand, he is, he's telling us how we should uh, steward his res our resources, what he's given us. Uh, spend money, not on earthly riches, but on eternal things, on friends, on people, 
in order to accrue a warm welcome into heaven. But, but also there's, this, there, there's, there's that heavenly perspective that you see he, he, he gets at there. That, that, that is what Jesus is commending when he says uh, the, that the master commended the master, or that the master commended the manager, right? That, 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 the, the commendation is for shrewdly preparing for the future, right? The, the, the manager, he knew his time was limited, and his shrewdness kicked in once he realized that this, this is the end of the line for him. His, his, his time and his job is limited, so he must shrewdly be prepare for what's to come. Obviously, in the parable, he's, the, the manager's concern is to be welcomed into people's earthly homes. Jesus' concern is for a, a heavenly welcome. But the manager, he knows his time is nearly done, and so he, he wisely prepares and looks to the future. And Jesus is commending that kind of future perspective and shrewdness, this shrewd living that comes from having that, that heavenly, eternal perspective. Using money, not in, a, not in a, a sinful way, not in a crooked way, not buying friends, but he's pointing, pointing, uh, he's, he's pointing to him, the, the manager, and he's saying his realization that his time is limited, that, that, that this is not all there is, that there's this future concern uh, to, to prepare for, that's what he's praising him for. A commendation, not on his dishonesty, but on his forward-thinking shrewdness. And have you ever noticed that Jesus, he's always trying to enlarge our perspective, right? He's, he's always trying to, to lengthen our perspective, which is really important, right? Because it's so easy to lose that, that heavenly 10,000-year-from-now perspective, and we get trapped in this concern for the present moment, right? We, we, we get lost in the anxiety and the stress of today, and Jesus is saying, child, this is not all there is. In, in fact, all of this is, is coming to an end for you soon. And there's this eternal future that you should be preparing for. You should have that on your mind daily. You should have that, that having that 10,000 year from now perspective, it should inform the way you live your life now. Right? It should inform the way that you, you spend your money in this lifetime. Right? The wealth is God's anyways. It's, it's his given to you to steward for a lifetime, and how you steward those resources will have eternal ramifications. Tabidi Anyawile said, we are not good stewards if we cannot see beyond earthly dwellings and possessions to the home that is coming in the kingdom. Let me say that again. We are not good stewards if we cannot see beyond earthly dwellings and possessions to the home that is coming in the eternal kingdom, right? And, and, and in order to, to answer that question for yourself, if, if are you being a good steward, you must ask those questions. Do I recognize that, that all that I have belongs to God? Do, do you see the, the things in your life as, as what you have accomplished, what, what you have, have worked so hard for? And there's truth to that, but don't you realize that the breath in your lungs are a gift from him anyways? That he is over it all. He has is, he is ordained it all. It's his. He is the owner. We are mere caretakers. Are you using those resources in a way that, that, that pleases God or cheats God? 
Are you storing up for yourself treasures in heaven, using that, that money in a way that increases your joy in heaven? Or are we trusting in the riches that will surely fail us? God's stewards must be shrewd in how we handle his possessions. We need to handle them in a way that looks forward and prepares for our eternal home. And quickly as we close, not only should God's stewards be shrewd, they must also be faithful, um, right? Because you can be wise and you can still be unfaithful. That, that, was, that was the problem with the dishonest manager. He was crafty, he was shrewd, but he wasn't faithful or true. He, he didn't handle his master's business correctly. And so here the Lord emphasizes faithfulness in stewardship. Let's read those final verses again, starting verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have, been, if, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, again, that, that earthly mammon, that, that earthly wealth, if you've not been faithful with that, he says, who will entrust to you true riches or, or heavenly riches? If, if you've not been faithful with that which is another's, how will you, uh, who will give you that to which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus says, use that earthly money shrewdly, right? Use it on people. Use it on gaining friends. Keep, that, keep in mind that heavenly welcome. Prepare for yourself a, a heavenly home. Okay? Know that, that, that how you use your money here has eternal significance. And so you must be faithful. You must be faithful in how you steward now. I, I really wish the Bible explained more about what our life in the new heaven and earth will be like. Don't you? Like, like, tell me exactly uh, what it's going to be like. Tell me exactly what we'll be doing, right? Be- we, 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 we want that because our hearts long for eternity. We, our hearts long for that, but, but the Bible actually doesn't do a whole lot of that. It says relatively little on what life in the new heaven and earth will be like. But, but you do pick up on a sense in these kinds of verses that, that eternity will not just be a, 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 a kind of a blissful rest in the clouds, Right? We, we will continue to faithfully serve the Lord as members of his kingdom um, in a perfect way, in a sinless way. But these verses, they, they begin to tell us that the way we live on this side of eternity has significance for the life to come. Right? Our, our faithfulness in this life will affect what will be given in the next. If you've not been faithful in this earthly wealth, Jesus says, who will entrust to you true heavenly riches? It's hard to wrap your mind around that, but, but there's something important that he's saying. And it, 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 it's not that, it's, we, we're trapped in a sinful experience, right? And it, it's, it's, it's not that we will enter into our eternal dwellings and, and somehow there will be this like start from scratch kind of sense. No, there's, that's, that's not the sense that you get from Jesus here. He says your, your, your life to come is somehow affected by your faithfulness here. Again, it's impossible to wrap our earthly minds around this, 
But there will be no sin, right? There will be no competition. There will be no jockeying for position. There will be no jealousy or envy over what others got. But there is this eternal significance to what that experience will be like based on our faithfulness in this life. Paul hints at that in, in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive with its due for what is, for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. Right? How we steward his possessions in this life has ramifications for the next. Look at me. Because of the cross, that is not something you have to fear. Amen. That, that, that's not something to be anxious about. That's, that's not something to, to be afraid of. It's actually something that should excite you. It, it's, it should motivate you and, and spur you on. It should, it should lead to abandonment of earthly gain. It should lead to pouring your life out in service and in love and in generosity to others. It should change the way your relationship, it should change your relationship to money here on earth. And, and maybe that's a good question to kind of ask ourselves as we finish, is, is what is your relationship with money? And you might be thinking that seems like a nonsensical question, right? You can't have a relationship with an inanimate object, and Jesus would say, not so fast. In fact, he, he does this brilliant thing, and he, he actually personifies money in the end here, and he, he says worldly wealth it can be a powerful and seductive master in your life. He knows that you and I will be tempted to, to give your life in service to money, in service to, to earthly riches. Why? Because, because money can be an immediate and tangible God in your life. Can't it? M money can give you immediate access to amazing food. Right? It can give you uh, speedier access to, to, to quicker uh, heal, physical healing. It, it, money can, can open the door to exciting adventures. It gives us a measure for safety and security and happiness in this world. And those are all so much more, more tangible and immediate than God's provision for us in this lifetime at times. Right? Money gets us things immediately. Pastor Mike McKinley wrote, for, for those reasons, money makes for a powerful competitor to God's claim on our hearts and lives. That's really true. And as, as people who are living in 2023, which is pretty amazing, uh, people who are living in, in a, a, a peaceful Northern Ireland, a, peace, a people with, who live in a time and a place with, with many opportunities to live comfortable lives, you will be tempted to serve two masters. You, you will be tempted to not only give yourself to service to God, but give yourself to a second master, which is money. And, and so he ends by saying, no one, no one, no one, none of you, there's not one of you, can serve both God and money. If you try, you will fail. He knows perfectly well that, that, that we will either love him and devote ourselves to him or be pulled away from him. Right? And, and so, what is Jesus after? What is all this about? What's he after? 
He's after your heart. Why do you leave the glories of heaven and, and put on earthly flesh? He says, I've come to seek and save the lost. I, I've come for you. He's after your heart. He's after your love. And so I don't think there's any coincidence that this teaching comes immediately after the parable of the prodigal son. Right? Remember that the climax of that story is the father's public humiliation, his, his costly demonstration of love in order to find and bring his lost son back. What, what did the father want from both of his lost sons? He, he wanted their hearts, right? He, he wanted them to, 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 to know their identity as his sons, that they wanted, he wanted them to, to now live in light of his love. There's no way that those two sons could earn their way back to God. And it's the same for us. That there's no way you can earn God's favor by, by writing a big check to this church. But he's calling us to respond to his costly demonstration of love displayed on the cross. And his son died in order to save and gain us. And, and, and one important way we respond to his generosity is by stewarding his possessions faithfully. Right? That, that, this is just one of the ways that we live in light of his grace in response to his costly demonstration of love. And so in this confusing at first parable, Jesus says, as you live as children of light, in this earthly place, remember that there is an eternal future to come. R remember that there is an eternal dwelling that you will one day be welcomed into. Not just by me, not, not just by my heavenly angels, but by the people sitting next to you right now. But by the friends you've made and by the, the friends you will continue to make and share the gospel with. Jesus says, keep that perspective as you, you journey on towards the end of your race and be faithful. Shrewdly make the worldly wealth I've given you serve you in advancement of my kingdom, not the other way around. Just stand with me and we'll pray.